Just talk to me a little bit so I can get a little sound check here. My name is John Paul Dully. I'm the director of the Detroit Library and Archives here at the Heinz History Center. Is it Dully, not Daly? Dully. 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 Oh, yeah. gee, I'm sorry. Dully. That's okay. John Paul Dully. <laughs> okay, check, check, check. Oh, this sounds good. Okay, so you, where you are, could you give me a little, uh, say, uh, Peter Piper picked a pepper. Peter Piper picked a pepper. <laughs> I'm just uh, checking out the plosives. Okay. They? Pup, pup, pup. Am I close, close enough? Yeah, you're perfect. Yeah. Yeah, this would be good. John Paul, welcome to Veteran Voices, the Oral History Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. We're delighted to be here. You know, we're no strangers to the Heinz History Center. We've always enjoyed having you here, and the work you do is so important and vital to our mission that we're thrilled to be a partner. For those who don't know, we've been coming here recording veterans' oral histories, uh, sharing our archive with you all, and you all have been transcribing and and uh, taking care, tender loving care of those precious interviews that we do with veterans all throughout Western Pennsylvania. We so appreciate what you do here. Giving voice to the living history of, of Pittsburgh's dynamic res- residents, the folks who have contributed so much to our country, to our nation, to the world, um, is, is an honor for us and it's a privilege and we're delighted to be a collaborator in this project. Now you're the director of the library here, the Archive Library. Mm-hmm. How long have you been here? Uh, I'm a native Pittsburgher and I've been doing archival work for 38 years. I've been here in Pittsburgh uh, since March of 2015, so almost 19 months. Wow. Well, we're going to talk about uh, a specific part of, of archiving, and that is transcribing That's right. these interviews. Um, but I want to know, what drew you to archival work? Well, uh, my master's is in American history from Penn State, and I have worked for the New York State uh, Library and Archives, the National Archives in Washington, D.C., the Pennsylvania State Archives, the Nevada State Library and Archives, and I was the university archivist at the University of Washington in Seattle. And so after a long career, I decided to come back to my hometown, uh, make a contribution to the history of the folks that I grew up with. My dad worked at Edgar Thompson. Uh, My grandfather worked in the mills at Rankin, and um, this is home base for me. So this was a labor of love. Wow. Okay, so I feel like all our interviews and all this work is in really good hands. They are in the hands of a Pittsburgher who cares about the history of of this area, sure. That's awesome. Well, we're going to talk a little bit today about the importance of oral history and in particular, uh, uh, a particular form of oral history, and that is the transcription of the interviews. Right. Well, well, oral history is a, a field of study and a method of gathering, preserving, and interpreting the voices and memories of people and community and participants in past events. And it's an old; it's one of the oldest types of historical inquiry. It, it predates the written word, and it's one of the most modern. It's been initiated with tape recorders, and in the 1940s, we're now using 21st century digital technologies. And so it's a chance to collect memories and personal commentaries of historical significance um, throughout time. And an oral history interview generally consists of a well-prepared interviewer with questions and an interviewee and records their exchange and often in a video format. Yeah. You know, I, I often think of oral history as being authentic. It's grassroots history. It's coming first person from people. Historians often talk about the difference between primary and secondary sources. Secondary sources provide context. They're often published. But primary sources are the voice of the folks who were generally at the event, who were uh, contemporaries of the important uh, event that took place. And uh, they provide insight into what folks were thinking of at the time that the event took place. 
Traditionally, oral histories have been preserved in what format? Written text or video or film? Uh, the, all, all of the above. Um, ever since the you know, inception of recording devices, oral histories have taken place. And there are, of course, written interviews of folks in 16th and 17th and 18th century newspapers. So that's a type of oral history. Uh, an oral recording, of course, took place when the technology became available well into the 20th century. But um, from the beginning of, of technological capability of recordings, there have been oral histories. And so um, I think what makes them valuable is they allow us to learn about the perspectives of individuals who might otherwise not appear in the historical record. Um, we often look at uh, war as about the presidents and the generals and the dignitaries who made official pronouncements, but not necessarily from the perspective of soldiers on the front line, those who actually contributed from a different perspective to very large international events. And was, these were personal memories in many cases. And oral history, I mean, it, it, this is an area that the Heinz History Center has really taken seriously and uh, been engaged in really since the inception. We have a wide variety of oral histories. Our, our African-American program, our Italian-American program, and our Rao Jewish History program all have oral histories. And so the Veterans Voices component of it uh, certainly complements the totality and holistic approach we have to trying to get many aspects of the underdocumented communities of Pittsburgh on tape. Well, I really like the Italian heritage connection. I, for three years now, I've been coming down and, and recording the folks who've come here to the center, and they are just wonderful, wonderful little snippets of their lives, and especially around food, and that's really why I like to come here for the food that day. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a wonderful time, you know, just to engage those, sure. those common everyday kinds of experiences that people want to share with us. Right. And historians in the past, uh, they've relied extensively on correspondence and diary entries and information about life in journals and ledgers and daybooks. But in today's world, there's telephone and email and web-based communications that have largely replaced those written words. And without oral history, much of the personal history of the late 20th and 21st century would be lost to future historians. Much of what happens today happens in places like Pinterest and Facebook and Instagram and capturing the actual voice of the participant in a, in a historically viable medium is uh, an opportunity for future generations to then go back and reference that material. So that raises uh, a question. Today, video and audio is just so prevalent, social media in particular. Why are, are we even still dealing with oral histories preserved in written word, the written form? Because when we talk about social media uh, and the bombardment we have today of noise and information, we're often talking about um, edited materials, uh, abbreviated materials, uh, materials that have been synopted or spun or clipped or excerpted in a way that uh, would allow a researcher in the future to question whether it had been manipulated or edited to reflect a particular point of view. A transcript is a, a verb Batum, um, it, it's an opportunity for us to actually create a tool that might be used by researchers in the future to cite the comments made by an individual at the time it was said. So, for an example, a historian who might be writing a book on a veteran uh, 50 years from now would be able to say, in a particular oral history interview given on such and such a day, uh, in such and such a location, 
45 minutes into the interview in response to a question about this, this was the response that was given. It was, it's a way of making the information more trustworthy. It's a way of being able to cite specifically much more than just a nuance or an overtone, but a specific fact or event that took place and in, in the perspective of somebody who was there when it happened. Hmm. Well, let me question you a little bit on that. Well, why can't a video do that or an audio recording? Interviews can be used for research or exempted for publication or radio or video documentary or a museum exhibition or a dramatization or a form of public presentation in a way that just an audio recording could not. An audio recording would have an oral perspective where a transcript would have a, 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 a visual perspective. It's a lot easier to skim through 20 pages of, of a paper transcript to find a key word if it's searchable, than it is to listen for that word in a 40 or 50 minute uh, oral history. Ah, now I see the value now. Okay, so so someone mentions that they were... At the Battle of D-Day, and instead of saying, where in that interview did they talk about D-Day, you can say, well, they did that at one hour and 34 minutes and 14 seconds in, and you can go right to that spot as opposed to having to listen to the whole thing. To right, find because it. you have that text. Because you have the right. text and you can search for keywords. So if we have, and so far in Veterans Voices, 113 oral histories, if we ended up with 113 transcripts and they were all in a particular format, meta tag the right way, we could go in with keywords and start comparing different veterans' perspectives on perhaps being at the same battle or the same event or their ideas on the same topics. Uh, it would be a way of cross-hatching and enriching the value of each of those recordings because now they'd be seen within the context of other recordings. Right, right. And searchability, I mean, that's, uh, we think of scholars and um, academics, you know, looking for things or someone who has a specific uh, research uh, uh, agenda, you know, they want to find out about a particular battle. That is still really a powerful heuristic. Right. And, and there's also value in uh, the quality control aspect of a transcript. When veterans remember an event, they will often remember things with proper names, proper names of places, proper names of individuals. If those names happen to be European or Japanese, there may be mispronunciations. They're wondering, what, a, a future hearer may be wondering, what are they making reference to? Where exactly were they at? And through the quality control process of creating a transcript, you get a chance to go back. Multiple people can hear it. Oh, they're talking about this village in France. Um, and they can then annotate that transcript to say, this is what is being referenced and uh, clarify for someone who may be only hearing the audio uh, what is actually being said and put it into a, an understandable context. Well, let's talk a little bit about the process of creating a transcript from a video, film, uh, audio recording. A lot harder than people realize, right? Yeah, it's it's probably, we think, a seven-step process. First, there's a word-for-word -word rendering and print of the words, and often nonverbal utterances spoken in interviews with minimal editorial intervention. So that's creating just the raw product. What does the first hearer think was said? Then that product is probably given uh, a review results in that document being reviewed by the interviewer for accuracy and correction, so that the interviewer said, no, this is what I was asking. This is what I meant to be a listener. 
eliciting from the respondent. A third step would be then reviewing by the narrator for accuracy and correction, amendation, amplification, and occasionally redaction or restriction of certain materials. No, I didn't want to say that. Oh, that's kind of private. I wish you wouldn't put that out there, that kind of thing. And then fourth, revision per the narrator changes. Five, editing the annotation for sense and context. Six would be indexing and seven would be cataloging. That would often involve adding key meta tags so that the material might be referenced. Uh, for an example, somebody might be talking extensively about D-Day and the words Normandy may never show up in the uh, oral history. And so you may want to add certain keywords that may not show up uh, so that that can still be referenced by those who wanted to find it. Mm. Well, those are a lot of steps in there. A lot of steps. I don't think you know the average person really understands what all goes into. All Even those when folks steps. are listening to this podcast, not everyone will hear it the same way. Yes, folks will take different things from it, and so there's value in having a second or third set of eyes and ears on an oral history as you're creating that transcript. Right. It's a quality control issue. Yeah. How many transcripts are here? Well, we estimate that right now we have about 550 oral histories, and probably about a fifth of them have been transcribed. So I'd say about 100. Wow. So a lot of steps. Uh, a lot of steps a, involved. A big process. I also have to say, parenthetically, that we have uh, oral histories created by other institutions besides our own. So, for example, there was a uh, project uh, 30 years ago with the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission on Pittsburgh immigrants, and they created a series of uh, Polish, African-American, and Italian immigrant uh, transcripts. We also have a project that was um, put in place through NPR, and we have a lot of the Pittsburgh interviews that they've done over the years. Oh, wonderful. Wow, I didn't know that. Boy, you guys really rock it here, I tell you. Thank you. How does all this come together? You outlined all those steps, but how does it really happen? When any patron or researcher comes into a library and archives, they often have to um, connect the dots. The role of the archivist is not to tell them answers, but to help them ask better questions uh, about their own search of inquiry. So an archivist is connecting them to primary sources and secondary sources. An archivist is telling them a little bit about the context in which those sources were created, uh, how those sources have been brought down to us to the current day. But an archivist doesn't uh, interpret, a historian interprets. So our job is to collect resources, uh, appraise them, describe them, preserve them, uh, conserve them, make them accessible, but not interpret them for the patron. What we do is we place numbers of materials in front of them and then try to help the patron connect those dots and make sense of the pieces, which is why most of the oral histories that we have uh, need to be seen within the context of the time they were created uh, from the ba personal backgrounds of the people who were giving those oral histories and be seen within the totality of uh, veterans of the Second World War, veterans of the Vietnam experience, veterans of Afghanistan, because these are all very unique and very different theaters. And so, Are these transcripts here at the Heinz History Center in Paper form, uh, microfiche, microfilm? Uh, a variation of both. Uh, many of the ones at the, uh, from the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission have been moved from cassette tape to digital. Um, and those are in uh, paper form as, uh, as well. But we can place them online and hope to do, the, for this project in the future, placing them online. Online. Now, yeah. that, now we're moving into sure. the digital. Digital age, right. Digital age, right. And that would make them much more accessible in the sense that they can be retrieved by keywords and they can be uh, cross-referenced and searched much more easily. Mm -hmm. In your own work as an archivist, have you relied on transcriptions? 
I have in for those research subjects which are uh, contemporary, and by that I mean the last 50 or 60 years, a lot of my research was in the colonial period, and so there aren't many transcripts, although there are a lot of um, letters and diaries and journals which do give very personal and moving accounts of folks who were eyewitnesses to events, but it's different than an, uh, an oral history where you actually have the exchange, the banter, the interaction between two peers or colleagues or folks who can share the experience of a conversation. And that, that gives us an insight that would be a little different than a, a dry or sterile page in a book. I guess I, I'm asking that question to get a sense of um, how valuable you've found transcriptions. Are these things that um, people would read for pleasure, or is this just an archivist, a research tool? Well, I'll answer that from, from two perspectives. I worked here one Saturday afternoon, and a woman came in aware of the fact that her father had given uh, a Veterans Voices uh, oral history transcript in the Italian-American community. And she asked to see it. Uh, we pulled out both um, the recording and the paper transcript. She immediately asked us to photo a copy because she wanted all of her children, the grandchildren of the gentleman who had been interviewed, to have their own copy. So we made that immediately for her, and that was over 250 pages of photocopying. The most important part, though, was, and this goes back to the intent of your question, I think, she wanted her, her children the grandchildren of the interview to hear the voice of their grandfather, just to hear their grandfather talk. And that was kind of moving to just watch them put that on and her to say, this is your grandfather talking. And that was a moving and very unique experience. Wow. So even though they all left here with the paper transcript, something to take with them, um, they always knew that this is where they could hear their grandfather talk. How neat. Yeah. I personally like to read transcripts. I really do. I mean, maybe that's just me. Yeah. I just, it's almost novelistic sure. in the sense of, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it, because you're very aware of the fact that it's a dialogue. If you're reading a novel, you have the all, he said, he muttered, he stuttered, he said, yeah, where in a, in a transcript, you can kind of, it's almost like reading a, a play, a, di um, a monologue in a play. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a theatricality to reading a transcript, I think. Well, we, you know, we're talking about um, transcriptions in a literary sense. Uh, well, how fidelic can these be or should they be? I mean, should they be to every, should they have every ah uh and um and every pause included? The oral should always remain unedited as much as possible. I think that the verbal to make it usable to a scholar often will get rid of the, re, will redact those parts which are uh, duplicative or not clear and Ill, Ill, not audible. Um, we'll get those parts out which are clearly factually inaccurate so as not to uh, reflect poorly on the quality of the interviewee uh, as, as someone who may have just misrepresented or misremembered a fact. Often that's a, an editing process which becomes uh, difficult within the context of the fact that we are often interviewing fairly elderly folks and so they will um, simply go off on a tangent and start talking about things which aren't relevant. And so you bring them back to a subject and, and make sure that there's some cohesion to the narrative. A good oral history tends to be fairly linear in the sense that an interviewer is eliciting responses in a chronological narrative because it's easier to tell it in a linear fashion as opposed to jumping back and forth between present and past tense. Are you saying that when it comes down to capturing an oral history in the written transcript, the archivist takes certain liberties to 
take out some this of the... This is why I talked about the seven steps, because we're not throwing anything away during those steps. We're keeping that first version with the ums and the ahs in it. But that may not be the one that's actually put online for posterity, because when we make a commitment to maintain anything in perpetuity, we're maintaining things with a certain obligation to migrate it to the latest format, to make sure that it's always going to be current and, and audible. And um, you're not going to always want to make online all renditions of an edited version available. So there's a publication version, if you will, yeah. and then the raw stuff, which is always available to re researchers, but not necessarily the final one that you would put online. I see. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, labor that yeah. goes into yeah. this this process of creating a transcript. And uh, I mean, it's it's huge. Sure. It's really huge. If you've got an hour of an audio interview, you may be looking at many as five or six hours to create that first draft of of the first go around. A quality control after that, depending on how how tough that first round was, may be another um, two or three iterations of that. So an audio transcript could be as much as uh, 20 to 30 hours of work for a one-hour interview. 20 to 30 to sure, 1. Sure. Wow. Because, and again, this is basing in the fact that we're not just talking about the creation of multiple versions for the interviewer to review, for the interviewee to review, to make the edits, to put the second set of ears and eyes on it. You're also talking about then posting it up and tagging it and making sure that uh, again, over the over time, it's going to be accessible. And then you're monitoring that as well. You're doing some metrics on that and making sure that you know folks who are using it can actually hear and cite it in, in a reasonable kind of way. Does it take a lot of expertise to produce? Um, no, actually, it, it takes a little bit of training. But uh, the expertise is really the kind of expertise you get from experience, not from any class you can take. Um, early on in my career, I attended a conference, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Archives Conference, had a joint conference with the an association of oral historians. And it became very clear that not everyone had the skill sets necessary to create a good oral history interview. You have to have a certain ability to research the background, prepare the right questions, uh, the, the skill set to elicit the right responses in an empathetic kind of way. And very clearly it became, most archivists became aware of the fact that this was a specialized set of skills to create oral history interviews. Is it difficult? Uh, not for those who have the gift, but not everyone has that gift. Yeah. And how is the process managed here? The process is managed here very much in cooperation with their partners. So with the RAL Jewish History Program, with the Veterans Voices Program, with the Italian-American Program, there are different folks with expertise in those programs who can ask the right questions. For an example, in the Jewish History Program, someone who can understand um, Hebrew and Yiddish and the words that might be unique to that faith community would be significant to uh, having the right cultural background to ask the right questions and understand the answers in order to do the right kind of follow-up questions. Are these persons part of the staff? Are they volunteers? We have curators for all, all the three of those programs that I mentioned, African-American, Italian-American, and Jewish. Um, for other ones that we do, we often will have folks with some background or expertise. So, for example, when uh, NPR recently came to do an oral history interview with David McCullough, our CEO, Andy Masick, did that interview because he had the relationship with David to elicit the kind of responses that would be meaningful to an audience. 
Well, we need to make sure that the public is aware of the fact that the uh, creation and use and maintenance and long-term preservation of these is a vital importance to the, the mission of the Heinz History Center. It's what we do. It's why we exist is to make sure that this material is uh, preserved and made accessible to our patrons. And sometimes uh, those resources become apparent to us through the process. Um, the folks who are creating them donate enough resources to get us started. But in many cases, we collect materials that are stored here and uh, are still awaiting the, the proper tagging and the proper preservation that takes place. And so just keeping people aware of the fact that there are there's always a need to support and um, and enhance and sustain the viability of, of these sorts of materials is, is I think, uh, an awareness raising opportunity for us here today. All of history takes place in a, in a partnership and collaboration between any historical repository and the community that it serves. And so uh, the Heinz History Center, uh, in its dedication to its mission, welcomes um, volunteers to come forward and, and come to the library and archives and use these. We ask, ask for those who may be aware of uh, folks who are worthy of being interviewed to bring those to our, uh, our, our knowledge so that we can um, act on setting those interviews up as, as quickly and, and as expeditiously as possible. And and also to recognize, again, that the long-term uh, sustainability of the program will require um, a dedicated core of community activists who can uh, enhance and uh, support and create and expand this program in the future to, to make it truly valuable for the citizens of, of the nation. John Paul, maybe I'm just one of those weird people who like all this stuff. Maybe as you are too. <laughs> but I think people listening to this will get it. I mean, I think, you know, this is inspiring. Thanks. And I think you know, when people pay attention to how important transcriptions are, the mission here at Heinz History Center to preserve the history and, and through the ar archival efforts, it's, it's just so apparent that uh, this is such good work. We need to support it as a public. Veteran Voices is, you know, we're contributing to that as well. And we're very happy to be a part of this. And I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast to share, you know, these insights that really are part of any oral history project, especially one that is, you know, takes seriously the, the long-term care and accessibility of oral histories. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. And the Heinz History Center is delighted to be a collaborator and a partner with Veterans Voices Program and all of the veterans that we're honored to help preserve their, their work and their dedication and their service. And so um, it's a pleasure for us to be able to, to partner with you guys. And uh, thanks for all your great work. I'm Kevin Farkas. Thank you for joining us. And remember, every veteran has a story to tell, and we are listening. See you next time on Veteran Voices, the Oral History Podcast. Podcast.